This morning's uh, speaker is uh, John Fry. Uh, John and Joanna are missionaries with ABWE and um, uh, to, to London, England, uh, a community on the outskirts of, of London called Epsom. And uh, just imagine, he's going to tell you a little bit about um, his ministry as well as open the word of God this morning. Um, but in the way of introduction, just imagine that you're the only church for 20,000 people within walking distance. Now, if you live in England, you walk a lot of places. Um, we're used to going to Meyer and, and then to, you know, these different places and pulling up. But if you own a car in England um, and you pull into their version of Meyer um, or Walmart, you pay $5 to park your car um, everywhere, just about everywhere you go, in the car park, as they call it. Um, they have these strange terms over there for, for things. Anyway, no. Um, but $5 to park your car. So you walk everywhere in population density, especially in what is one, one of um, the, the largest um, cities in the world, one of them, and a, a certainly a world cultural center. Um, we, we see that there, there's a, a great need, a vast need uh, for uh, a witness. And so within their doorstep, um, there's 20,000 people and John and Joanna and their family are in a work revitalizing this church that has been long, many, many years um, without leadership and, and without a pastor. John's my nephew, and uh, so it's just really good to have him and his family um, for us to, to reconnect um, with them personally when they're here. And I hope that you will connect with them as well. Um, following the message, we're going to give you a time just to contemplate the Word of God and respond to the Word of God. And um, if you do go to our response card in the app or use that card that is in the seat back in front of you um, and drop that in the offering plate or in the box here at communion and you just put your email address in that response section or prayer section that's that'll be the cue that says uh, hey get my email address to uh, the fries and uh, we'll make sure that they get your email address and you can get on their um, their their prayer list and updates uh, from them so thank you John for uh, bringing the word of God to us this morning Well, good morning, Northbridge. It is good to uh, be with you this morning and to spend time uh, in worship, uh, singing songs, reading from the London Baptist uh, Confession, which is the doctrinal statement of our church. So it's always good just to uh, read through that and to reflect upon the wonderful truths uh, that have been passed down for many centuries and uh, things that were written, you know, close to three, four hundred years ago, impacting us today uh, in 2022. Um, as Ray said, we are working with a, a small church in Epsom, uh, Grace Baptist Church, and it's been around for about 100 years, um, been a faithful uh, gospel witness in our community, but in desperate need of revitalization. Uh, we've lived in England for four years, have spent three years, or uh, one year, uh, with uh, Grace Baptist, and just looking forward to see uh, what the Lord has in store for us as we enter this new year uh, and begin to transition into really active ministry uh, in our community and sharing the love of Jesus with those uh, around us. And as we return uh, in just a couple of weeks, um, we're going to be, as a church, spending time looking at the seven churches in Revelation, so chapter 2 and chapter 3, and considering uh, what it means to be a healthy church. Uh, if you're familiar with those two chapters, uh, Jesus Christ observes, uh, he evaluates, he commends, and he rebukes uh, seven churches in what is modern-day Turkey. 
uh, and is calling them to be healthy, thriving, growing gospel churches. But that call does not come out of a vacuum. Uh, But in chapter 1 of Revelation, there is a glorious gospel vision of Jesus Christ, which which drives that. So if you have a Bible, I do invite you to turn uh, to Revelation 1. We're going to be working our way uh, through this entire chapter this morning. Imagine for a a moment, as we we think about the historical setting and context of what's going on as John is writing uh, this letter to these churches, imagine being a part of a local church where you face incredible opposition every single day uh, because of your faith. A life that's lived with persecution, uh, the threat of physical harm, even the prospect of death, all because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Imagine you're in another church uh, where the the culture around you is really driving you uh, to the fringe of society, Uh, a setting where deeply held beliefs, uh, where good and godly actions are seen as ridiculous maybe even dangerous. Or imagine sitting in another church where the gospel was once the bedrock of their theology, where sound doctrine and biblical convictions were a mark of this local church, but is now a place of a false teaching, uh, a capitulation to the world's philosophy. You might be sitting here this morning and, and thinking to yourself, well, I don't necessarily have to imagine this. Uh, we look around our world today, And all three of these are found in the 21st century. The reality is, throughout our world today, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who um, have met together like we are doing, and it is life-threatening. It's threatening to to openly talk about Jesus, uh, to, to open the Bible and to read it, to be a faithful follower of Christ. In the West, where where we live, there is a, a revving up of skepticism towards Christianity. Uh, one Christian author has uh, recently titled his book, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. How many of us feel the weight of that book title? At work, at school, uh, you open up the news on your phone or you consume media, maybe even in conversation with friends and family. Uh, you feel that, that pressure. We recognize that across the globe, there is false teaching all around. The idea that you must earn God's favor. Or that life under grace means that you can live however you want, even if that goes against God's word. Or even that God is beholden to grant your wishes, uh, giving you health and wealth and prosperity. These and many more teachings, uh, they are promoted as being from the Lord, but they only serve to boost Uh, the ego of the proud, or to burden the spirits of the weak. And again, as we look around our world, we recognize all three of these. And yet these challenges in the modern world are not new or unique to our place and time in history. Over the last 2,000 years of the life of the church, God's people in every generation have faced these challenges. And yet we have a great God. A God who out of his his wisdom and his grace has given to his people his word. We have an anchor and a help amidst these struggles. And that's where this letter, uh, the book of Revelation, is is flowing from. Uh, It's what motivates John to record this vision and send it to the brothers and sisters. 
Now, I think sadly, all too often, Revelation is sort of seen as a, a strange or a confusing book. Now, for some, it only leads to uh, debate and controversy. Others crack it open and they're put off by the bizarre creatures. Uh, the dramatic and figurative language that flows through uh, these 22 chapters. But right here in chapter 1, at the opening of this letter, we see the simple purpose of the, this letter to these churches. Churches facing the same struggles that we face and see all around us. Look at verse 3 real quickly. John writes, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. What's the purpose of Revelation? It's to bless God's people. These 22 chapters proclaim truth that should bring happiness to us this morning. These words give us joy and hope in the midst of tumultuous times. They remind us that God, He is the one who is in control. That all things unfold according to His good and wise purposes. The book of Revelation is a good gift to God's people. It's something that our brothers and sisters in centuries past have recognized, especially in the songs of the church. If you read the, the, the songs throughout the ages, they often speak of both the past and the present they lead us to the future promise, the hope uh, that we have in Christ. And the reality is if we don't feast on the book of Revelation, our worship will be anemic. And so here at the very beginning, in chapter 1, John lays out the foundation of what brings this happiness, this blessedness, this joy, and this hope. It's a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're seeing is that a local church, a gathering uh, marked by a gospel culture, a people who stand firm in the face of opposition, are secure in biblical conviction, are people who know Jesus Christ, who trust in who he is, who recognize what he has done and their, in their hearts. And this is true for the seven churches who would be the first recipients of this letter. It's true for us uh, living in the 21st century. And so for the remainder of our time, we want to look at this opening chapter uh, to see how a healthy, thriving church, in spite of what's going on, a church that is marked by unity of, of worship, doctrinal conviction, and passionate mission, is a church that looks to the glorious gospel vision of Jesus Christ. And remind ourselves that we don't need to be afraid or put off by revelation, but we need to be steeped in the profound truths given by God to his people. As we begin, let's look at the introduction here, the first five verses. John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. 
At the forefront of of this letter, uh, we notice the divine source of this vision. Verse 1, which God gave. The reality is that the God of the Bible is not a distant, unknowable deity. But the God of the Bible is one who can be known. He's a, a God who has made himself known. He doesn't leave man kind of guessing and wondering what is he like. What does he desire? What is his will? No, he is there and he is personal. And here by the work of the Spirit, John is telling us that the the curtain is is being pulled back. That we are given a, a deeper glimpse into the Lord's sovereign purpose in this world and the work of Christ which secures the eternity of his people. And again, this is for our good and for our joy. And these opening uh, words, they're intensely glorious. It's full of Trinitarian language. I really appreciate the reading from the London Baptist Confession this morning. It directs our, our thinking upon the depths of the Trinity. Because in this passage, the Godhead is on display. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, eternally dwelling in loving relationship with one another. Verse 4, we find the Father. He's described as the eternal one who is and who was and who is to come. Just reflect upon that for a moment. God has always been and will always be. The Holy Spirit, verse 4, is pictured as the seven spirits who are before the throne. This doesn't mean that there are seven Holy Spirits, but it is symbolizing perfection and fullness. The Holy Spirit is completely effective in carrying out his ministry in this world and in our lives individually and in our life as a church. The Holy Spirit is the one who the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, who who looks to and, and points to as the one who transforms our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. What did we sing this morning about dead lives becoming a garden, alive, living? The Holy Spirit is the one that brings that change of heart, allowing us to live as we were created to live. As Paul would write to the Galatians, with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We would love to to know and to live that way. We recognize that on our own that's not possible, and yet through the Holy Spirit these things can be marks of our life. There is no lack in in the work of the spirits. In verse 5, Jesus is seen as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings. Three simple words, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He is the one declaring truth and revealing God's word to us. He is the priest, the one making the once for all final sacrifice. And if we look at the life of Jesus Christ, he not only died as a sacrifice, but he is the only sacrifice that has been raised. It's why the book of Hebrews tells us that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, he is king, ruler on the throne, the one true sovereign. He's the one that Daniel, also living in the Old Testament times, sees in his vision and describes as the one who was given an everlasting dominion. Jesus is the one who has everlasting glory. He has the the, the kingdom that will not pass away. Now just imagine how reassuring this would be for these early first century believers. With all of the the tension and pressure that they feel. 
Hopefully, as we look around our worlds, we recognize the pressure and tension that our churches face. This encourages us this morning because this is the God that we worship. This is the God that we have sung about. This is the God at work in the world today. This is the God at work in your heart and in my heart. And notice again from this opening introduction here, the the blessedness flowing from the triune God. Verse 4, for from him there is grace and peace. There is perseverance through turmoil. There is inner settledness in the uncertainty. And all that that follows on in Revelation, all of those things which might put us off and and, and keep us from from reading, they, they really flow from and are grounded in this God. As we sung this morning, the God of the Bible is unlike the gods of this world. The idols of our hearts, those, those things and ideas or people that captivate us with their promises. It's those things that we, we feel like we could never live without, that we find ourselves dwelling on as we lay in bed at night and can't sleep. And yet, as is the case with every single idol, they under-deliver. They will always abandon. They never satisfy. Sure, they bring pleasure for a season, but they can never offer true joy. And yet, as we see in these opening verses, our God is eternal. Our God is perfect. Our God is all-satisfying. And this vision, this glorious revelation, is from this God. He is the source of all that, that John sees and records for God's people. Is it any wonder, then, that we can read verse 3, and state that God's people are blessed, are made happy by the words of this letter. Now from this point, John is going to move in. He's going to draw our attention onto uh, the person work of Jesus Christ. The vision of Christ becomes fuller and richer for us. And at the center of this vision is the gospel. Picking up in uh, the middle of verse 5. He writes, To him who loves us, And has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth shall wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Again, we we recognize that many people see Revelation as something to be frightened of, something that brings fear, maybe we just ignore it. But I think here in verse 5, could there really be anything better to read? This is a verse of good news. Him who loves us and has freed us. I really think that one of the most frightening verses in all the Bible is in the first book, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. If you're familiar with the opening of of the book of of Genesis, you have Adam and Eve, God's special and unique creation. They are made in his image. They're given the privilege of not only being God's representatives on this earth, but they are made to be in loving relationship with God. And what does the Lord do? He blesses them. He gives them everything that they need. He calls them to trust in his wisdom and his good ways. But we read in Genesis 3 how Adam and Eve, they listen to the serpents. They believe the lie that God is working for their misery. And so what do they do? They turn inwards. They disobey and they reject God. They sin against him. 
And they now face the the punishment and the consequence of sin, death and separation from God. Death, which they were not created for, is now the reality for every single one of us. Even greater, though, is the broken relationship with God. And it's here that we see the devastation of Genesis 3, verse 8. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Could you imagine that opportunity? (laughs) Spending time in the evening walking through the perfect garden with the Lord. And yet we read, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. Our greatest problem is our own sinful heart which drives us away from God. That is devastating news. And yet in just a few verses from Genesis 3 verse 8, God speaks words of grace and mercy in Genesis 3.15 as he's giving a, a curse to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here is the first mention of the good news of the coming rescuer. One who will ultimately deal with the problem of sin, who will crush the head of the serpent and deliver God's people. And as we jump to Revelation chapter 1, where we are this morning, John is reminding the believers that Jesus is this rescuer. Jesus is this serpent-crushing Savior. And there's a few things to notice about this rescue here in this passage. Verse 5, we see that this rescue is done out of love. What do we see in the text? Him who loves us. If you're familiar with the Apostle John, who wrote a gospel, three letters, and then uh, this revelation, he's no stranger to the theme or the emphasis of God's love. Uh, We're all familiar with John 3.16. You see that football games held up behind the end zone. For God so loved the world. Or as Jesus uh, makes a statement, uh, his I am statements in in John uh, chapter 15, when he says, I am the vine. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. In 1 John chapter 4, uh, we read that in this, the love of God who was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. The glorious good news of the gospel is that God is not waiting around for us to accomplish some deed, some action, some religious ritual which we earn his favor Because the reality is in our sin. Our sinful heart would would never drive us in that direction. Rather, in spite of our rebellion and rejection and disobedience and sin, God pours out his love. What did we celebrate last month? Emmanuel. God with us. He takes on human flesh. He, He sets aside his glory in heaven and lives that one perfect life. He comes to free lost sinners. Those who see him as their enemy, who hide from from hearing his word, he comes to rescue. Now, continuing on, we we see the depth of this love. It says he has freed us from our sin by his blood. Jesus has has given his life. And, And again, just think about that for a moment. That one most holy and righteous and lovely and perfect Son of God took the place of God's people on the cross. He died the death that we deserved. And those of us whose whose faith and trust is found in Him, we not only stand righteous before God, which is incredible in and of itself, but we can now know the love of God mentioned here in this passage. The rescue of Christ flows from His glorious love for His people. 
Secondly, we see that this rescue frees us from the bondage of sin. He has freed us from our sins, the John writes. Sin is a horrible captor. Sin deceives us with momentary pleasure. But it only offers misery forever. It captivates our, our hearts and our minds. We, we see in the language here that its destructive nature is like that of, of slavery, where we live unlike we were made to live. We were created to be in loving relationship with God, to walk in the garden with him. But sin has broken that relationship. Our hearts have turned inward, and we have exchanged the truth and the joy and the happiness of God for the lie of Satan. And left on our own, what do we do? We dig our heels in deeper into self-focus and self-satisfaction. But the love of Jesus, his life and death and rescue offers freedom from that cruel bondage. Thirdly, we see that it's a rescue that brings eternal life. Verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega. Again, the glorious good news of the gospel is that not only is there freedom from sin, but there is rest in the eternal one. Just like the, the Father, Jesus is eternal. This means that his people, those whom he has rescued, will always be his people. The Christ who, who loved you and who went to the cross for you and died in your place is the Christ that will love and keep you in a million years, in a billion years, in a trillion years, forever and ever. And once again, we notice the blessedness or the happiness of this promise. Eternal life in Christ is not one of just sort of sitting on a cloud, plinking on a harp forever, sort of all by yourself. But as we see in verse 6, it's living and serving in his kingdom, a perfect kingdom, a kingdom where we were created to live. And again, we must think about the great comfort that our brothers and sisters in Asia Minor must have felt as they read and heard and took to heart these words. Jesus is the rescuer. His rescue flows from the infinite love of God and it recreates that which was lost and it brings us eternal life. And there's that great uh, song title, Christ, He Will Hold Me Fast. And we can rest in that as God's people. Now this morning, if you're not a, a Christian, can I encourage you as, as you're thinking about this, encourage you to, to, to recognize what has captivated your heart. What are you trusting in to give you purpose and meaning in this life? Ask yourself, does it truly satisfy? Or am I still left searching and, and longing for more? Can I encourage you, look to Christ. Consider his overflowing love, the freedom that he offers. Turn to him, trust in him. As a church this morning, is, is the gospel the bedrock of, of your ministry? Is it the heartbeat of all that you do this morning? Is it why you are gathered here in this group? May the gospel, just as it is in this vision of Jesus Christ, be at the center of our lives. Well, as John continues, we will once more be drawn into uh, the person of Jesus Christ. In the final section of this chapter, he will describe what he sees. And he sets a great example for us as God's people in our response to this vision. 
Uh, Picking up in verse 9, he writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. You know, one of the great things about God's Word is that it does not ignore what's going on in real life. I mean, think about John. Where is he at? He's exiled on the island of Patmos. And we might think, you know, sitting in January on a Mediterranean island doesn't sound too bad, but... This was not a a pleasant trip for John. The seven churches are faced with many pressures and threats, both internally and externally. This vision of the the Lord, this this word from God, is not sort of pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking for God's people, but it's truth spoken into real life in the good times and especially in the hard times. Again, it's... It's true blessing for God's people wherever and whenever they are, whatever they're facing. For Jesus is in the midst of his seven churches. We, we must not forget that. Jesus is there. He is working in and through his people no matter what they face. Have taken, having taken this in, John describes the site in a little more detail here. And here we get another overwhelming glory of this Son of Man, a title that Jesus used almost primarily um, or exclusively from from anywhere in Scripture, which highlights his exalted position as that promised Messiah, as that one spoken of in Genesis chapter 3. Picking up in in verse uh, 13 again, in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth. I'm sorry, seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I would imagine that this is a pretty intense vision for John. And we see sort of two distinct uh, parts here. There's a description of the character of Jesus and a description of his authority. The description uh, starts uh, with his clothing. Jesus is seen as wearing a, a robe and a sash. Again, he's presented as the king and the priest. Both of those articles of clothing are unique to those roles, and they were significant in the Old Testament. But what's unique here is that in the Old Testament... No one person wore both of those articles of clothing. You were never a priest and a king. But Jesus is both. Jesus is complete. In him is both the perfect sacrifice and the perfect rule. Secondly, John notes his hair, which is white as wool. He is all wise and pure. There's no falsehood. There's no failure in Jesus Christ. His rule is perfect because he is perfect. His sacrifice is final because he is pure and spotless and without sin. Next, we see that his eyes are like 
flames of fire. His vision pierces and sees all. Nothing escapes the gaze of the Lord Jesus. And this is both comforting and convicting. Think about it for a moment. When Jesus says in just a few verses to the, to the seven churches, I know. He sees what his people are facing. He knows the threats that trouble them. But he also knows where their affections lie. What has captured their hearts. Verse 15, his, his feet are like burnished bronze, the symbol of judgment. Now here the, the Lord is coming in judgment, both on the, the sin, sinful and the righteous. The truth is Jesus will crush every foe and bring victory to his people. Finally, in this description of his, uh, of his character, his voice is like the roar of water. You think of a massive waterfall or a, a strong ocean waves where you can't hear anything but the water. When the Lord Jesus speaks, it is divine power. So when Jesus says to the storm, be still, all is calm. When he says to the ill, be healed, there is restoration. When he says to the demons, leave, they must be gone. When he says to me, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, there's rest. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, death is no more. It's a glorious description of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But John also describes Christ's authority in verse 16, for his, his hands are the seven stars. As you see later in the text, these are the, the messengers or the leaders of the church. And what we're seeing here is as a healthy, thriving, growing church, we have to recognize that Christ is the head of the church. He is the one who has full, final, and sovereign authority. And this, too, is both comforting and convicting. The reality is for ministers of the gospel, we serve because God is at work in us. Whether you are the one that, that is preaching from the pulpit, serving in children's ministry, greeting people as they walk through the door, it is God's work in your heart and life. But more particularly, this is convicting for those shepherds of the flock. For leadership in the church is not for building up oneself, but it is serving and shepherding God's people according to his way. It's being a servant and humble. We also see the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Again, a symbol of, of judgment. Jesus takes sin serious. Jesus will deal with sin. He does not ignore our sin. And for those who reject him, the punishment of sin is sure. There is that, that death and separation from God forever. But for those whose faith is placed in Jesus Christ alone, he is like a warrior. He is the one who fights for his people, who protects his people, who keeps his people safe. And finally, his face shines like the sun. And I think John must have been reminded of, of that visit on the Mount of Olives. So if you remember when, when Jesus was on this earth, he takes Peter and James and John up to the mount, and he is transfigured before him. His glory is on display. And John gets to see that again here. Right before him is the glorious sovereign king, the rescuer of God's people. 
And look at how John responds, verse 17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. A true vision of the Lord Jesus leads to one thing, awe and worship. If you're not overwhelmed by Jesus, if your heart is not captivated by who he is and what he has done, then the reality of this vision has really not been realized and has not uh, sort of sunk, sunk deep into your heart. I like to think about John here. He's someone who, who walked with Jesus for three years. John had countless meals with Jesus at a table. He was given the, the privilege of caring for, for Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's not really until this moment, this glorious vision of Christ, that John is overwhelmed by Jesus falls down in awe and worship of his Lord and Savior. For those who to look at who they once were, sinners, rebellious against God, seeing him as their enemy. For those who, who marvel at God's grace and his mercy in our life, who recognize that change of heart, who delight in the love of Christ and understand who he is, this will be the heart response. That inward curve of the heart, that self-focus will be redirected to outward worship of our Savior. As John closes this chapter, once again, the blessing of God is seen. This is truly an overwhelming experience. John's not simply on the ground before the Lord out of, out of worship in the sense like we gather this morning, but there is fear in John. But the Lord reminds him, and he reminds all of his people, that in Christ there's no need to be afraid. Look at verse 17. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I don't know what troubles you this morning. I, I suspect that this new year, although it might be full of excitement and anticipation, I do expect that all of us have worry, anxiety, and fear some type of uncertainty. As a, as a church, there is a guarantee of, of pressure and threat and trouble in this world. But Jesus looks at, at his people here and he says, fear not. Elsewhere, looking at his disciples, he says, take heart. As Paul reminds us, for who is against us? What charge can be brought against us? Who can condemn us? What can separate us from the love of God? And he goes through this list, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. We can recognize those things in our world and in our lives. And then he lands at the end of that passage, no, none of these things are against, condemn or separate us. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from this love. And so we can live as we were created to live. We can live in loving relationship with the God of the universe. 
fulfilling His purposes in our lives, delighting and worshiping Him. As we close, a single question, what drives the heart of this church? What forms the the culture of this gathering? What unites people that, in many ways, the world says shouldn't really be spending time together, seeing each other as brother and sister, and yet here we are. A vision of of Christ like this one, one of of a divine source with, with greatest news ever heard at the center full of the love and work of Jesus Christ is a vision that will lead God's people in faithful service, in unified worship, with a passion for the proclamation of the gospel, no matter what is going on around the world. So this morning, may we look to Christ. May we rest in in his love and protection. May we as God's people delight in the relationship with God that we now know. And may we anticipate eternity in the presence of God and our Savior forever in the good and perfect kingdom. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your call on our our lives and, and bringing us together as your church. I pray this morning that we would have a vision of Christ, a glorious gospel vision which reminds us of who we once were, reminds us of of who Jesus is and what he has done, and that overflowing from our hearts would be worship and love and delight, that we may rest in your good promises. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, John. A vision of Jesus Christ from Revelation chapter 1. And when we truly understand who Jesus is, when we see that vision, it calls us to a response. Um, Every time we crack open the book, um, the Word of God calls us to a response. What will you do with this vision of Christ? Will it um, draw you in? Will it draw you to repentance? Will it draw you to worship? Will it draw you to serve one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? To host one another, be hospitable to one another, encourage one another. Um, All the more as we know that our hope, our trust is in Jesus Christ. It is what fuels uh, the the vision that we have as a church. Our vision for reaching one another with this good news. And as a result, reaching our community and reaching around the globe. Um, For Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And he is worthy of our worship. He is Savior and he is king.